Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, the primary elections are now less than two weeks away, so if you're getting a little bit overwhelmed by the campaign ads that you see on television, fear not, the end is near. But we're still going to be talking about politics here this week, and joining me is Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. I wanted to catch up with Melissa this week to sort of wrap up what we saw in the debate season that came to a conclusion uh, just last week, and what all of this suggests in terms of how this election might unfold and how the rifts within the Republican Party might play out. Here's our conversation. Well, Melissa, thanks for joining me again here on the podcast. No added pressure here, but this is my first podcast since becoming an Idaho Press Club award-winning podcast. So, you know, don't, don't, you. don't bring it down, okay? Yeah. Don't, don't, don't drive it into the ditch, you, you, please. You don't, want, you don't want to come down to our level. I'm not um, saying that. I'm just saying, you know, we're, we're, yeah. we're on a crest, and hopefully it's not a fluky crest. Noted. Thank you. All right. So debate season has come to a conclusion and uh, interesting, interesting stuff, uh, both during the time of the debate and even after the cameras shut down. Yeah, for the, for the debates that happened. For the debates that happened, they were very interesting. Yeah, the, it was funny because the Secretary of State debate, uh, it aired on April 26th, and that was one where I thought, you know what, it's going to be interesting, especially because I'm, I'm very interested in election policy. I'm very interested in, um, you know, transparency when it comes to uh, candidates and donations and campaign finance, all of this. And but but I didn't think it would be punchy. No, and it was. And it, was. it was very punchy. Um, and not only during the debate and what aired, but as I was trying to close the debate, I've never had this happen. I've moderated so many debates over the years. One of the candidates, Senator Mary Souza, kept trying to interrupt and keep talking because she objected to something that Representative Dorothy Moon said in her closing statement. Mm-hmm. Um, never had that happen before. No, and then they got even to, candidates whose name rhymes with Charlie Drown knew that when the cameras went off, the debate was over. But Moon and Souza Moon kept and going Sousa, at it. They, they did. They did. And, you know, when, when we closed out the show... Uh, they continued their very animated discussion uh, when, you know, the, the rest of us were kind of shocked that it happened. Um, it is a, a thread that Betsy Russell picked up in the KTBB debate that aired two days later. Um, that Thursday, she, she said, you know what, this is something that you objected to, that Dorothy Moon said, Senator Sousa, um, let's talk about this vote that you had in 2020 when it, it, it was large data centers. Um, and as it relates to allowing them to come to the state. Mm-hmm. And, um, it eventually paved the way for Facebook, though, as Senator Sousa says, it wasn't written with Facebook. Right, it wasn't a Facebook bill. Exactly. And so, um, you know, the, the bigger issue, or the, I guess the bigger theme there, it wasn't about the bill. It was that that race is testy. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. lot hotter then I, I knew it would be interesting from a policy standpoint, but politically, it's it's fascinating as well. And again, kind of an unexpectedly 
testy race. I mean, we could have expected when you get Raul Labrador and Lawrence Wasden on the same stage with Art, Art, Art McComber, you, you knew that was going to be a, a strident debate because you have three lawyers, three strong personalities, three strong legal ideologies. You could have seen that one coming and you could have seen in the superintendent's race the same kind of clash of ideals between right. Brandon Durst and the two more mainstream, you know, positioned candidates. Right, right. And and those debates went pretty much how I thought they would, mm-hmm. right? They, they had flare-ups, they had testy moments, um, but they were very policy-focused. The super, or the Secretary of State debate um, was really interesting to me. Right. And, and, you know, the superintendent's race, I mean, I was on that panel, you know, when the debate was over, the debate was over. And, and while there were definitely moments, really, with all three candidates chipping at each other, sure. you know, it was it was within kind of the lines of what you would normally expect in the debate. That's that's exactly it. You expect it, and and you would almost I, I don't want to say hope for it because it makes it sound like blood sport. And but but you want to see the differences between the candidates, and you want to see that they're passionate about their ideas and why they deserve to be elected, you know, whether they're running for superintendent or attorney general. Uh, it's why I had really been hoping that we would have more debates, you know, but, mm-hmm. but we know what happened there. Um, we want to see those candidates side by side, and we want to see them be able to talk to each other and question each other and challenge each other, but also defend themselves when they are challenged. And we want, well, I'll say we, but I'll, I want to see candidates responding in the moment to the stress of being in a, in a, in a debate setting. Exactly. I, I want to see that. I want to see the, the, the human side of it. And sometimes that's even more resonant than what they're saying on positions. All of these positions are high stress jobs, every single one of them. And they're very, every single one of them in their own way deals with incredibly complex policy issues. And you know, they also have their offices to manage. They have people who work under them. And for the lieutenant governor, that's a very small office. For the attorney general, it's an incredibly large and complex one. Right. Same with secretary. You are running State. a big law firm. Yeah. Superintendent, a college construction, um, you know, controller. You are running a big department if you're, if you're state superintendent. And, and so seeing how somebody operates under pressure in a contentious moment, I mean, that's management 101, right? And and when they are asking for our vote, and I'll say especially if they're an incumbent, I think that it, it's so critical to be able to see them keep their cool in those positions. And having said all that, boy, it would have been fun to watch Brad Little and Janice McGee on the same stage. You know, boy, it would have been fun to see Scott Bedke and Priscilla Giddings on the yeah. same stage. I'm over it, Kevin. I'm over it. Last night would have been the governor's day. So we're having this conversation on Wednesday morning. Last night was when we had scheduled our governor debate. And, you know, I I thought a couple times wistfully, man, that would have been such a good debate yesterday. But then I got to go home and not wear makeup and eat tacos with my kids. So win for me, I guess. Yeah. A loss for the voters of Iowa. Yes. But... And a loss for those of us who would really enjoy the political theater and the the clash of ideals, the clash of ideologies that we would have seen. In all seriousness, you know, I the incumbent advantage 
is is something that a lot of campaigns really hold on to. This idea that the incumbents have a big advantage. And, and historically in Idaho, it's very true. We in Idaho don't tend to boot out incumbents who have been in office for a long time. But looking at recent election results and governor races, you know, for Butch Otter, for example, his last race, again, his last his last primary specifically, you know, he won with just 51.4% of the vote. Russ Fulcher uh, was, he ran a strong campaign. It was his first statewide race. Um, he got 43.6% of the vote, but notably he won both Ada and Canyon counties, mm-hmm. yeah. which I think, you know, was a huge shock to the Otter campaign. Um, you know, Otter had put a lot of work into the rural counties. It's a lot of the same strategy that you see from Governor Little, uh, but they also are coming out of very, very different environments. You know, 2014, that Republican primary, we were starting to creep out of that Great Recession. It was good economic news for Idaho, but there were still some people who were not happy with how the state was being run. Now we're, you know, climbing our way out of this pandemic. Economically, overall, we're in good shape, but there are still some small business owners who are very unhappy with how Governor Little handled the pandemic. Mm -hmm. He's since said in hindsight, you know, he would have done things differently in the moment. He understands why he did what he did. You know what would be a great place to explain that? A debate. Right. (laughs) Debates solve so many of these problems by putting them (laughs) forward and putting them in in front of voters. And, you know, and, and I think one thing that we can't emphasize this enough when talking about debates and non-debates. We know how this is played. And we've seen this happen so many times. I mean, you know, there are so many times when a candidate looks at the calculus of where they are in a race and determines whether they think a debate is in their best interest. And you don't have to scrape through Brad Little's explanation too too deeply to find some of that. Or, Or Mike Simpson's explanation in the congressional race. You've got two candidates who are at least showing the appearances, outwardly showing the appearances of feeling like they're in pretty good shape heading into May 17th. But how much of that, too, is you're in a bubble in the campaign. You're, going, mm-hmm. you're on the Lincoln Bay circuit. You're surrounded by Republican voters who are very heavily involved with the Republican Party. The average Republican voter in Idaho doesn't go to the Lincoln Bay dinners. They are, you know, too busy getting their kids to school or running their business or taking care of their parents or, I mean, average everyday person stuff. And so campaigning in person is a big part of of elections, obviously. These events and traveling the state, that's huge. You know, the thing about debates is that's another tool. It's not the only tool, but it's Mm -hmm. another great tool to interface with voters. Um, regardless of where they are in the state. And and the beauty of the internet and all of our broadcast partners is they can listen to it on the radio. They can listen to it in podcast form. They can go to the debate. I mean, I watch the superintendent debates after they happen. I couldn't watch either of them live. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think it's a shame that some of those really important, interesting debates didn't happen. Uh, you know, and, and I've, I've been saying that multiple times over the last few weeks. We tried so hard to make all of them happen, and it didn't. And, you know, we're going to look at 
if there's anything more we can do to make it a, a more appealing proposition mm-hmm. for candidates, you know, make, make it so that they would be more likely to consider in the future. And there are conversations that I think we're going to be having over the next few months, but I can't force anyone to appear. Right. I can, I can convince them. I, I can do my best to convince them, but you know, I don't have summons power yet. <laughs> okay. Well, so <laughs> <laughs> yet. <laughs> don't want to elaborate on that, but, but, but I guess I, I wonder what this debate, non-debate season tells us about, the state of the Republican Party going into this primary because it's a really interesting place here. You know, you've got candidates like Brad Little probably looking at you know the, the mainstream Republican support, the, the folks who come out the Lincoln Days, the, 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 you know, right. you know their their core of support and expecting them on May seventeenth. But then you see what's happening in some of these Lincoln Days, like the straw poll in Bonneville County that showed overwhelming support for the hardline group of candidates who are running more or less like a ticket. Mm-hmm. I, I just really wonder what's happening in the Republican Party and whether it's different this time around or just more overt. That split between what we're seeing on the county level, um, the Republican Party, the central committees um, versus what the average voter is uh, thinking when they're heading to the ballot box and how they're interfacing with the candidates. We've seen that split for a long time. Um, you know, I, we all remember the disastrous Republican state convention in mm-hmm. 2014. A lot of that came down to these central committee, um, you know, I, I don't want to say hardliners, but very strong feelings about the way the party was being run and the ideals that they were promoting. Yeah, this... And that, that happened in 2012 in Twin Falls. It happened in 2010. I mean, th- this is not new. The difference, there are many differences in that we have a changing population, a growing population. Is it going to be enough to really shift the entire dynamic of the election? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll find out in a week and a half. And... What is the mindset of the people who show up and vote on May 17th, whether they're Republicans, whether they're crossover voters or you know, independents who are, or just, who are voting because they want to have a say in this primary? What drives people to the polls this time around is really hard to predict and really interesting. Right, right. And it's, it's going to be different in different parts of the state, too. Right. As it always is, you know, and, and it... You don't have to squint too hard at county-by-county maps of the 2018 primary to see, okay, you know, I I can see how some of these are going to play out. Um, There's also the candidates themselves, too, and the strength of the candidates themselves, because you can have somebody who philosophically agrees with one candidate but doesn't like the way they conduct themselves or who they associate themselves with. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to see conversations about that where, you know, people aren't um, comfortable with Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's associations, um, you know, with, say, the three percenters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is that going to be enough, though, to convince people to say, you know what, I think I'm okay with that little. Again, we'll find out. And I'm really interested 
We've seen this split within the Republican Party for years. There's nothing new here. I don't think this election is going to settle that rift. I don't think, you know, I, I think, you know, my guess is come May 17th, both both factions of the Republican Party are going to be able to point to some results and say, we won there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't see this as a definitive struggle, but I definitely do see it as a more public and more alert struggle because you've got a very clear ticket of hardline candidates and a clear-ish, but maybe not as you know, as publicized ticket in the mainstream. And this election isn't going to be the end of the struggle either. I mean, I, I have a collection of columns by Ralph Sneed that were written in the early 70s on my desk. And I, I think the collection is called This Is Why We Lose or something like that. And, and honest to goodness, you, you know, I, I, I've read many of the columns and you can trade out dates and names and they could be running in the Idaho press to, as the guest column today, mm-hmm. really. I mean, these, this split isn't new. It, the approach and the way it's playing out, the vehicles are different, but a lot of the passengers and a lot of the destinations are the same. And I wonder to what extent we will see whether a governor, an incumbent governor, has coattails. And you know, how does that affect other races down ticket, other statewide races, other legislative races? You know, if Governor Little gets the nomination on May 17th, does that have any impact on Scott Bedke, Lawrence Wasden, you know, go on, go on down the list? And these legislative races that could be extremely competitive. I think that on one side, you will see a coattail effect with Lieutenant Governor McEwen. That is a slate of candidates, mm-hmm. right? That, it, that is something that we're seeing consistently across the state with endorsements um, you know, from, from conservative groups saying, these are the candidates we want. And you're seeing that effect with the legislative races as well. We're, not, we're seeing that to a smaller extent. On the other side, it doesn't seem as cohesive. It, because it's not from, it's not as much from the top down. You don't have Governor Little coming out and saying, this is my team. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not appearing at events together. I mean, they might all be at Lincoln Base together here and there. But there's no, there, there's no like slate going out. Right. And, and it feels like if you look at Little's campaign, and yes, he has endorsed Scott Bedkey to the surprise of literally nobody. But to a large degree, Brad Little's running a Brad Little campaign. Yeah. And he's raising a lot of money, and he's going out touting achievements from this past legislative session. But, but he hasn't endorsed Boston. Well, has he? I, I, that's a good question. Great question. I wish I knew the answer to it as we're sitting here on this podcast. I haven't seen an endorsement from I have seen a Governor Butch Otter endorsement for Wasden, mm-hmm. which is remarkable, thinking about how contentious their relationship was when Otter was in office, especially right. in that last term. I can remember that showdown between oh. Otter's office and Wasden's office over the Idaho Education Network broadband. Uh, and INL. Yes. 
huge, huge rift between those two offices. And now Otter's coming out to endorse Boston. And so so it, you can cross-check references, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can look at the overlap with endorsements, and there's there's certainly a slate there. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 I think it's interesting. And maybe that's that conservative slate is coming more. It's more of a grassroots, right? Like it's more from the central committee saying these are the people, less you know from the top down. Um, but but it is interesting to see the difference there. And, and you know, here we are. We're recording this. It's it's Wednesday, May fourth. Lieutenant Governor McGeehan is going to be doing a rally in Meridian tonight. One of the guest there is going to be Dorothy Moon, mm-hmm. you know, running for Secretary of State. So at least we've got that appearance of those two running side by side, which we're not seeing as much with Governor Little and other statewide candidates who you think he would be on the same side with, or, you know, in the case of Scott Bedke, somebody who he's already publicly endorsed. You know, aside from Dorothy Moon, um, a, a lot of the other guests at the planned campaign event for Wednesday night are from out of state. Mm-hmm. They're from Arizona. Yeah. Rogers. Um, and and so certainly there are exceptions to that. But you see a lot of the endorsements that Brad Little is rolling out are from within the state. And a lot of the endorsements from McGeehan are you know, from Florida, President Trump, from Arizona, Wendy Rogers, from Michelle Malkin. Um, and so how much of that high-profile national conservative profile is going to benefit McGeehan. How much is Glenn Beck saying, I predict that Governor Little is going to lose? Um, how much is that going to hurt Brad Little? Um, do Idaho voters pay attention to that? Do they pay attention to the in-state endorsements? Mm-hmm. Do they care that, you know, Senator Risch and Senator Crapo endorse Brad Little? But you can see how those endorsements are, are definitely playing a role in the way the three candidates for state super, uh, for secretary of state are running here. Um, you know, clearly Dorothy Moon is is looking for endorsements from the hardline wing of the party. Mary Sousa is touting endorsements from within the state Senate. I see it on her Twitter feed uh, fairly regularly. You know, Phil McGrain is. Right, banking on more of that mainstream Republican his support and his fellow clerks. County so. officials, people who are on the ground and know. And, and you saw that approach, too, in their debates. You know, people, the, the philosophical approaches from the three candidates and why they felt that they were qualified. There, there's the experience in the clerk's office that you got with McGrain. And then the experience from the Senate and from lawmaking from Senator Sousa. And Dorothy Moon really pointed to her experience with lands issues and the Secretary of State's seat on the land board as a reason why she would be a beneficial candidate. And so just totally different philosophical approaches to the office and to campaigning. And it's mm-hmm. just been fascinating to watch. Which I think, to bring it full circle, may explain what we saw during that debate and after that debate. You know, two candidates in particular, Moon and Sousa, really trying to differentiate themselves from each other and really trying to come up with a lane. Because during the 2022 legislative session, 
a lot of the bills that were sponsored by both Moon and Sousa were fairly similar. They weren't they weren't identical, mm-hmm. but many of them were similar. And so, you know, a, again, shame on me for not anticipating how testy that was going to be because they really did need to differentiate themselves from each other. And they succeeded in doing that. They mm-hmm. really, really did. Um, Even though on the issue that resonates probably with more voters because it's it's clear, it's mm-hmm. tangible. The question of the 2020 election, not a whole lot of difference between what Moon said and what Susan said. Right, right, exactly. But but when it comes to their approach to the office and why they think they should be elected, differences between the candidates and then very big differences between the two of them and Phil Green. This is what we get out of debates. and Wouldn't it have been nice to have a couple of more? I, I'm over it, Kevin. I'm over it. It's May 4th. There is nothing I can do about it. But you're like, we were summons power by just in time for the general election, so we won't be having to deal with these I, problems anymore. I don't want to say it's part of the Idaho Public Television legislative agenda, because it's not, and I will get in trouble. I'm just saying it would make debate season more interesting for me in 2024. Something to think about. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Thanks for being Kevin. here. Again, that was Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. I want to uh, follow up on a couple things we talked about in that uh, podcast interview, the first one being endorsements. Melissa and I were both a little bit stumped when we talked about the attorney general's race and whether Governor Little has made an endorsement in that primary. I've reached out to the governor's campaign and have not heard back, but I've done some research on my own, and I see no evidence of the governor making an endorsement in that race. So I'm going to operate on the premise that there is no endorsement at this point unless and until we hear otherwise. I made a reference at the beginning of the interview to uh, the fact that this is now an award-winning podcast. Uh, last week was the Idaho Press Club's annual awards banquet, and one of the awards that I was fortunate enough to receive was one for broadcast interviews uh, on this podcast. And that was kind of a, a fun one because you know, I'm a longtime print reporter, so this is a little bit out of my uh, comfort zone doing broadcast-style interviews, so it was kind of uh, cool to get some recognition there. Really a good night, though, for Idaho Education News uh, in general. We uh, received 16 awards this year, including uh, first place for general excellence in online reporting, so a good night for Idaho Education News. We have a rundown of all of our awards at idahoednews.org if you want to check that out. But I want to say something that I've said before, and it bears repeating. We are really in a an exciting time in terms of journalism in Boise, in the Treasure Valley, in the state. I've been at this for a long time, and I can't re- recall a time when we've had more talented, dedicated, smart journalists working across multiple media sources. We're, we're really in a great place, and I'm proud to be alongside uh, so many smart and talented and dedicated folks who are trying to cover the news and deliver the news to you. Uh, And it was great to see uh, so many of my friends and colleagues get recognition at the Press Club Awards Banquet as well. Now, I also want to recognize one reporter in particular, Blake Jones, uh, who also was an award winner last week. Uh, Blake's last day at Idaho Education News is today, uh, Friday, May 6th, and we're going to miss him. Uh, He has done outstanding work for us. Um, We covered the legislature together this session. Uh, Blake has done some terrific work 
breaking down federal coronavirus aid to schools and how that money is being spent. And his next chapter, he goes now to Politico in Sacramento, California. He's going to cover education policy uh, in California. I uh, wish him nothing but success and expect nothing but even bigger and better things in Blake's future. He's a, um, he is one of those really smart and really dedicated reporters I'm talking about, and it's been a privilege to work with him. Check us out at adoednews.org if you haven't already. It's been a big week of news at the website. I've been covering the ongoing search for trustees at North Idaho College, so you can get caught up on that. Um, I have a story looking at this primary, looking at how this uh, Republican primary has really exposed uh, the rifts between the wings of the Republican Party and, and how that might play out in the election and how that might be a template for future primary elections. Check all of that out at idohatenews.org. Check out our week's news there. Follow us on Twitter if you don't do that already. At idohatenews, we tweet out links to our latest stories, uh, bulletins on breaking news. You can follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And you can check back here next week for another edition of this award-winning podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week. Have a good week.